Warning, this episode contains some strong language. Listener discretion is advised. Hello, and welcome to Tales from the Trunk, reading the stories that didn't make it. I'm Hilary B. Bisniex. On today's episode, we have a good friend and large internet beetle, Premi Mohammed. Premi, welcome to the show! Hi, Hilary! Hey! I'm super happy to have you on the show. Uh, it's You've been like on my master spreadsheet of people I want to have on this show since day one, pretty much. So it's awesome to have you here. I'm very excited to be here. I hope you have power for the entire show. I also hope I have power for the entire show. Listeners, PG&E has been threatening all day to maybe turn the power off just up the street from me, so... If this episode has a big, massive fail, that's the reason. And you won't actually hear me explaining this. Yay! Primi, you're going to be reading The Broken Astrolabe of Tycon Silkentung, is that correct? That is correct. Alright, and is there anything that you would like to tell us about this story before we begin? Um, I guess just that uh, this is starting from the start, so it's not really from the middle of a story or anything, so hopefully listeners will be able to figure out what's going on, and I believe I wrote it sometime around 2014. It looks like I last edited it in 2015. So this is not a very old trunk piece, but it's trunked. Awesome. All right, ready when you are. Alrighty. The Broken Astrolabe of Tycon Silkentung. Tycon Silkentung, scourge of the Emerald Seas, bane of Her Highness's Imperial Fleet, Thief of the hidden treasure of the many-legged god, unscrewed his fingers from his ears and brushed the shrapnel from his beard. <laughs> oh, he said. The great three-master bobbed lightly on a sea that was not the sea. The same dark water he'd seen before he hit the deck. The same clear sky blazing with stars through the silk scarf of the northern lights. But all wrong. With ringing ears, he looked up at constellations that, to his expert glance, had never existed. Captain? His first mate, Nilo, emerged from the crushed remains of the bunkhouse, still holding a porcelain flask of rum, ghostly white against the dazed boy's sepia hands. It seems we have become temporarily inconvenienced, my stalwart first mate, said Tycon, gesturing mm-hmm. at the black ocean, the outlandish stars, in the sense that, to be quite clear, We are no longer on the terrestrial plane of being. I thought that when a pirate became temporarily inconvenient, he went somewhere more, Milo frowned, wet. (laughs) Ah, so you have divined it. A technicality spoken of in the saltiest of sailor saloons, a loophole of which only the... happen. We're furked, son, said Tycon. He took the flask and upended it over his mouth dribbling the ghost of rum into his ears and down his long, gray-streaked curls. It tasted vaguely of cinnamon. A seaman drowns. That's where he goes. No one likes to talk about her. But should you merely die at sea? How did... Oh. Tycon leaned on the railing of the murdered ship, which seemed solid enough, and picked splinters from his sleeves. Greek fire, he recalled now. A great glass cauldron of the stuff detonating damn near atop his head. You'd think it would be hotter, Nilo said. Torture, I thought, said Tycon. With that said, 
If they strain their ears over the lapping water, screams were indeed audible, a high, throat-tearing shrieking of true pain, like outside the Empress's dungeons. She liked to build them in public places so that everyone could hear her ministers at work, but these screams suggested that they had nothing on hell. Dreamily, he went to the great finger-bone-studded wheel and gave it an experimental twist. It moved as easily as if it had been made of sea foam, turning a rudder the size of a house and sending the shepherd moon in a smooth arc. Which way was north? Was there a north here? He put Milo on the wheel and ducked into his smashed quarters, tossing aside insubstantial debris till he reached his desk. The brass spyglass was intact, having evidently been killed in the explosion, but his astrolabe was nowhere to be found, likely vanished into the gaping hole just where the aft magazine had been. All he wished was to put the moon in a straight line, which, on a featureless ocean, far from landmarks, under stars he'd never seen, did not seem insurmountable. Mm-hmm. Had he not found the unknown islands of Thotbes with no more than his trusty instruments and a fair sky? Eluded the Imperial Navy in the mysterious lands east of the Great Danvar? Skipped his great ship like a stone unerringly from port to port, always arriving within days of his promises? What's our bearing, Captain? Do over there, he said and pointed. I do believe I see the outlines of what, in proper light, might be terra firma. But as the sun rose, a faint, cool thing that had no impact on the ship thermometer, the outlines of that land were no closer, though they had traveled for, his senses insisted, hours. The brass clock in his quarters, trimmed with fancifully cast gulls and squid, had apparently sustained not so much as a scratch, but it was not keeping time. He and Nilo watched in amazement as the hands moved backwards, jumped ahead, vanished for several minutes, reappeared. <laughs> you should get your money back for that, Captain," said Nilo, who enjoyed working for a man named Silken Tongue to precisely the degree that he would never be saluted as such. Tycon, rather than pointing out that the clock had been looted long before Nilo's time, pushed his hat back to scratch his head. Had his fleas, too, come to hell? Never mind. Now that there was a sun... He could get a bearing, instruments or no. Onward, first mate, and that'll be enough sass for now. (laughs) But nothing was so simple down here. With the sun up, they sailed for what the confused brass clock insisted was either two or thirteen hours, and their shadows wheeled gaily about their feet, and the distant outlines of the island grew closer a dozen times before veering away. The sun set with ungracious haste, visibly crawling across the sky, down, and then briefly to starboard, and then more lingeringly to port, giving them a moment of vermilion skies before the hateful stars returned. Uneasily, Nilo built himself a nest of folded canvas, not expecting to sleep here, where time and night had no meaning, but sleep he did, his slender back curled like a cashew nut, shivering in his burned and bedraggled finery. He woke to the sound of screams, and struggled free of his bed. Captain! Oh, not down here, not here. He wrestled the big man's hands away from the railing, adroitly knocking the captain's legs out from under him and sending them both spilling to the deck. Tycon clamped his mouth shut against his cries and clutched his bare head, face contorting in what seemed like a madness as sudden and pure as a fever. I cannot orient my loyal first mate, Tycon said quickly. All is wrong. 
the celestial rules have become corrupt. This surely is a place where no angels have come. Had I doubted? No, my dear Nilo, we are indeed in hell. For what else is hell except the only place where Tycon Silkentung cannot by sun or stars navigate his ship? Nilo had no answer. Always he had trusted his captain to find their way, and only knew the most elementary principles of nautical orientation himself. His hands slowly unclasped Tycon's velvet coat, trusting him to not attempt another leap. He knew that death had not been the object, not truly, only escape. Drop anchor, Captain, and get some sleep, he said, and at dawn we will decide what to do. Tycon muttered something that sounded like assent, and headed out of habit towards his quarters where his hammock still hung. Nilo placed the anchor himself, the great capstan moving with unpleasant ease, and returned to his nest, determined to keep watch until the strange sun rose again. Instead, the northern lights merely flickered and flowed brighter and brighter, bluer and whiter, until at last they vanished in a blink, and it was day. Curiously, neither this fact, nor the appearance of not one, but three suns, deterred Tycon as he emerged, stretching and roaring, the apparent picture of good health, his bronze face rosy and well. We have a spyglass, pen and ink, Nilo, he said, clapping the boy on the back. And I am no sniveling seal pup to roll onto my back and declare defeat simply because I have found myself in hell and cannot mm -hmm. steer my ship. This place runs on rules we can come to know. We must study them and devise our own ways. Despite the apparent weightlessness of all the ship's workings, they had to work together on the captain to bring up the anchor cursing and leaning on the translucent handles of scrimshawed bone. The very devil himself take this thing, Nilo began, then cried out as a great green-black tentacle flopped over the railing an inch towards them. Tycon sighed and drew his sword, wondering whether this were the malevolent soul of one of the many sea monsters he'd killed whilst alive. A belief in hell, after all, was clearly no prerequisite for being sent here after death. A screech of tearing wood signaled the loss of their figurehead, torn loose by another grasping limb, this one tipped with a lobster's glossy black claws. Terrible bad luck to lose a figurehead. He'd have to set Milo carving a new one right away. That's all I had for the excerpt. All right. So, I love that. <laughs> 100%. And it is very much... I end up saying this a lot to people who I have on the show, but it's very much a story that if you stuck me in a room and had me read that with no indication of who wrote it, I would be reasonably certain that was a Primo Hobbin story. <laughs> well, thank you very much. <laughs> and it reminds me of your Twitter feed, which is <laughs> about 95% Moby Dick jokes. Fair, yeah. And the other 5% of it, the other 5%, and it reminds me of, I feel like many of your stories that I have read feature people out of their place. And the one I'm specifically thinking of, looking at your profile picture of a dinosaur skull, is the time-traveling paleontologist who gets stuck in the Paleocene. Yes, I love that story. I like the idea of 
extremely competent people who still somehow find themselves out of their depth. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, it's almost the opposite of competence porn while still being, while still having that, that essence of it. Yes, they uh, tend to think they can use their skills to get out of the situation no matter what the situation is. So yeah. it's kind of our job as a writer to throw them into an even worse situation and say, get yourself out of that. Mm-hmm. Which I think makes some of the best stories. I agree. So I wonder, as somebody whose Twitter feed is 95.555% Moby Dick, what some of the inspiration was behind writing that. You know, I was wondering that myself when I started the story. I actually hadn't read Moby Dick since I was a child. Uh, and it wasn't, I think, top of the mind. But I, I was thinking kind of... The idea of, of some kind of bargain, I had this strong image of an explorer, not mm -hmm. necessarily a pirate, trapped in an unfamiliar hell, and, and even if he couldn't come back to life, because he had clearly been killed, he wanted to get to a proper piratical afterlife. Mm -hmm. And I thought, if you were in hell, who could help you get out? And so he makes a wager with the devil, uh, and that actually turns out to not be the answer to the question. <laughs> But, uh, yeah, the, the astrolabe figures in it, so that's how this ended up with this ridiculous title. Nice. That's awesome. So let's get right into the trunk, because <laughs> when we were talking about uh, your appearing on this show, you said, you know, I'd love to. I've got tons of things in the trunk, and I'll probably have more by the time we actually record. Uh, so I know that you write a whole awful lot. And I wonder what your feelings are on trunking stories, because it's something that happens to everybody. But I imagine, as somebody who has not written, I think, any fiction in 2019, uh, that it's a, a bit more common for people who are more prolific. Yeah, I was thinking about that, actually, when you invited me to be on the podcast, is what are my criteria for trunking something and have they changed over the many, 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 many moons that I have been writing. And um, I think they actually haven't. And I think mm -hmm. my trunk is so full because, like, as you said, I appear to be very prolific. I, I do write a lot, but it's kind of the mentality of just, oh, my God, get it out, fail fast. Mm -hmm. And so what ends up happening with my trunk stuff is I realize that it's not working and I'm too lazy to fix it, or I trunk it because I realize that I'm not really in love with the story. So actually, um, I think I'm trunking less these days because I stop earlier on projects I'm not very, very passionate about, which is mm. nice. <laughs> that makes a whole lot of sense, and um, something that came up in a conversation I had with Mary Robinette Kowal many moons ago was that there's sort of exactly what you're saying as we grow as writers, that it's easier to identify sooner that you're not in love with something and to just put it down rather than, you know, in the beginning as, as uh, baby writers, as we are want to talk about on this show, uh, the advice is very much like finish everything that you start, finish every single thing and that isn't the best advice as you move on and as you 
are able to like hone what you're looking for in a story. I absolutely agree. Um, honestly, if this trunk were a physical thing, you would be <laughs> able to take out cinder blocks of things from when I was quite a bit younger because there, there's like a 330,000 word epic fantasy story in there <laughs> because when you don't really know what you're doing, you think you can write your way out by just adding more stuff. Mm-hmm. Whereas now, if I want to trunk something, it's probably going in there after two paragraphs because I can gauge better whether it's going to work or not and not try to fix it by adding another quest. Yeah. Or even trunking it while it's still in the outline phase or still as like five weird scrawlings mashed together in a notebook somewhere. Yes, I have trunked many post-it notes. Yes. <laughs> but that brings me to you have written some words of wisdom that you wanted to make sure to talk about. Uh, and I, I thought it would just be perfect to bring them up right now that a trunk is more like a compost heap or should be treated more like a compost heap. And I wondered if you could expand on that some. Oh, yeah. Well, I don't think I really think of the trunk as a place where stories go to fossilize, exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, I have pulled tons and tons and tons of stuff out of the trunk. I, I don't walk my trunk. The trunk's actually not got a lid, probably. <laughs> <laughs> also, analogies are hard. But um, when you go back in, you may find that 90% of what you've written is unsalvageable. But mm-hmm. the 10% that's left may be gold. And, of course, that proportion is going to vary a lot. But if you mm-hmm. leave them in there and let them sort of mix together in your subconscious, you can always go back and mine something out of it, I feel. It fertilizes what you do later. Yeah, and that's, um, that's something that I really like that idea and it I find it really validating because I am at a certain point when I was but a wee baby writer at all of 18 years old I decided that I was out of ideas and so I I sort of ended up rewriting for a space of a few years kind of rewriting the same story skeletons over and over again trying to put the right flesh onto the bones and not that that ever really turned anything out exactly but i've found that stories that i put away five six seven years ago i've been able to pull that that good ten percent out of it and my cat just jumped <laughs> up onto the shelf. Well, welcome to the show, cat. Yeah, <laughs> please don't yeah. start yelling. I feel uh, with stuff in the trunk, um, just as you were saying, as you progress as a writer, or even just, let's say, as, as a person, it's easier to go back and pick out stuff that you couldn't see at the time, because, of course, now you've done more writing. You've done mm-hmm. more reading. Maybe you've taken some classes or learned some craft or gotten a mentor or something. There's going to be things that you see in your old stuff that you couldn't see at the time because you weren't there yet. So I think that's definitely the value of the trunk. I think time lends kindness to our own work in a way that, like, certainly there are times when you stick something in the trunk with some sadness of, oh, you know, I really liked this, but it just never worked. And sometimes you stick something in the trunk because you're just like, oh, I hate this now. And I don't want to see it. This is absolute garbage. But that time can bring out the gold in that garbage. I agree. Well, And I think with this particular story, um, it, it got trunked not because I didn't love it, 
but mm-hmm. I was just I was dissatisfied with how predictable it seemed and and everything that I was excited about and wanted to put into it seemed too obvious and to pick it apart and do the work of re-engineering it to be more surprising more tense or or deeper or more scary I, I just laziness overcame me for what I thought was such a silly pulpy story and mm-hmm. I, I stopped where I stopped knowing that readers would be like well I saw everything coming a mile away and I was just too lazy to start it up again but maybe someday because after the excerpt I read there's about another uh 3,000 words or so so it's it's a chunk but it's not a book or anything right and I I know that laziness mood and have felt it many a time myself and I also know I have probably three or four stories that I have resurrected two or three times at least each where it is just an effect of time it's just a a matter of oh these bits are good you know maybe it's a specific turn of phrase or it's a specific plot point but just everything doesn't quite fit on it yeah i think i have a bunch of stories like that as well or something like well i like this character but i feel like she's wasted here or oh this setting is cool it's too bad nothing ever happens you Mm -hmm. know so you maybe pull those out and stuff them into another story or sneak them into a novel or something yeah find that a character you really like the character but they don't belong there or that you really like the story, but none of the characters you put in it really belong there. So one of the things that I love to talk about on this show is when my guests have a novel coming out, and especially when that novel has some history to it with a capital H, and you have a book coming out, coming up in March of 2020, Beneath the Rising from Solaris Books. Yes, And it looks like there is some capital H history behind that book as well. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I think this this novel is the absolute epitome of trunked and then pulled out of the trunk and the mold dusted off it and the bookworms shaken out of it. So the history of this is that I was working on that book in university. I was, uh, I don't know, I guess sort of third year, fourth year, so between the ages of 18 to 20. And mm-hmm. I put it away because I put everything I wrote away back then. I wasn't interested in getting published. But later on, when I was interested and decided, well, maybe I should get one of those there, what do you call it, uh, agent thingies, mm-hmm. which, of course, you do with uh, querying a completed book, uh, unless you're a celebrity and can sell on proposal or whatever. Um, right. I went digging in my trunk and found a ton of extremely terrible, unfinished novels Mm -hmm. and a bunch of novel outlines that I decided I did not have time to fix. And then this book, which clearly needed some polishing, but was actually done. And I thought, oh my god, a finished novel. (laughs) (laughs) That's going to have to be the one. (laughs) Nice. So uh, I picked that back out of the trunk 20 years later, just about, no, 14 years later, sorry. And that was what uh, landed me an offer of representation for my agent. And eventually we got a book deal for it and a sequel. Fantastic. That's a really awesome way for things to go about. Because I feel like a lot of people, when they're writing, and this is appropriate, this episode is going up in November, so a lot of people are NaNoWriMoing right this very second. And I've seen sometimes on the forums some hopelessness around... 
oh, you know, I'm going to write this thing, but what is it even good for? That certainly for a lot of people, NaNoWriMo is a fun exercise, and for some people, NaNoWriMo is, I'm going to bang out this book into some semblance of done and then polish it for a year or whatever and and get it out there. And for some people, uh, myself included, I've sat down to NaNoWriMo three or four times and I've gotten, you know, a little way in, not even finished something and said, oh, what is even the point? And it, it really is just a matter of having the perspective of you know, you're putting in Malcolm Gladwell's 10,000 hours. Yeah, um, I've never done NaNoWriMo, but the impression that I get of it from Twitter is that it is super valuable for just what you talked about there, is getting somebody to go from the start to the finish of their project. And, and the finish, like we were saying, is so essential. You know, you can't publish something that's not done. You can't query something that's not done. Mm-hmm. And, you know, people give that piece of advice for a reason. And I also think I see a lot of people going whole hog on NaNoWriMo for the first week or so before realizing, like you said, that they are working on a project that they're not really into. And the next three weeks, if they try to finish it, are going to be torture. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Listeners, I'm sorry. It is now the third week in November. And I think it's, for most of you, probably a little bit late to start a whole new thing and get 50,000 words before the end of November. But next year, you got it. There are also 11 other months. There are also (laughs) 11 other months. Do not think that the rule is you can only write novels in November. (laughs) I wonder for you how it feels, uh, because some people are much more a short story author and some people are much more I only write novels and some people do both. And as somebody who is doing both, what you would say some of the differences are? Oh, that's a really good question. Actually, and I stopped doing both because uh, I sort of had to give up short fiction for the last year or so while I've been working on novels, and the stuff that's been coming out for me recently has all been reprints or stuff that I've sold before. That makes sense. I actually find short stories incredibly painfully difficult. They stretch me to my absolute limits as a writer, because when I started writing when I was, uh, I don't know, 13 or 14 or whatever, um, it was all novels all the time. Mm -hmm. And that was because of my absolutely god-awfully inconvenient natural tendency to want to put everything into a story and to Mm -hmm. not have either the judgment or the restraint to know what to leave out, which, of course, in a good short story, you're enjoying almost as much of what the author has chosen to leave out as what they've chosen to put in. And Mm -hmm. I never really developed that knack. So every short story for me is just exhausting, arduous, unbelievable. I actually find novels much, much easier to write. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So I guess, yeah, the main difference is that decision-making process for short stories I find so much more difficult because if something catches my fancy uh, while I'm writing a novel, I'll just put it in. I don't know. I like it. Yeah. Whereas for a short story, there's probably not room. (laughs) Yeah. I find for myself sometimes it's exactly the opposite, that up until recently, most of the ideas that I had had were very much just short story ideas, and that the one novel I have 
completed, if not finished, if, if we want to get into hair splitting there, was at times, I wrote it as an exercise as much as anything. I wrote it as, a, as an exercise of can I write a novel, but there were times where it was absolutely like pulling teeth for me to put another thing in where I was like, oh, this this seems like it's done, but this is 20,000 words long. Or, oh, this seems like it's done, but it's it's 30,000 words long. And it was, it very clearly wanted to be a novel. It was very clearly novel scope. Mm-hmm. But finding the length in it when I had written so much in brevity before. Yeah, I think that's why I'm so delighted to see novellas becoming more popular now. Mm-hmm. They they have their own specific uh, scope that fits perfectly in their length. And I'm finding novella length is just a tremendously satisfying length to read and write because, you know, it doesn't have as many layers or subplots or what have you as the novel, but it's more satisfying than a short story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I find some people definitely naturally gravitate to the novella length. For sure. And it's, to what you were saying, it is really, it's a very satisfying length. For somebody like me who tends to read slowly and sometimes in fits and spurts, the ability to finish a book is really valuable to me. Uh, You know, I'll, I'll read a Brandon Sanderson doorstopper book but it'll take me two three months sometimes to finish one of those but you know you can compare that to like uh, a sarah gailey river of teeth or a uh, martha wells Murderbot book where you know i can knock one of those out in an afternoon if i'm really dedicated and mm-hmm. get the same amount of Almost the same amount of satisfaction, certainly the the satisfaction of having finished something, but then mm-hmm. to see how much that form is getting stretched and how much that, you know, we just finished up with award season, but to see how much diversity there is in the novella space is really great. Yes, I've been finding that just wonderful, especially in terms of like choices for novella, whereas even four or five years ago, it felt like there was are fewer of them out there. Mm-hmm. And and so, sorry, so what you're telling me is I can't talk you into reading Moby Dick, can I? Oh, you absolutely <laughs> can talk me into reading Moby Dick. It is it is in my Everest-sized TBR. Most uh, of that and... TBR height is probably the novel itself. Yeah. <laughs> to be fair, I have read China Mieville's Rail Sea, which is Moby Dick on land. Moby Dick and also yep. sort of the Odyssey. Yep, which is an excellent book. It is an excellent book and has probably one of my favorite first lines of fiction written by, like, straight white guys, (laughs) at least. Like, that and the beginning of Neuromancer are, like, very memorable first lines. Yeah, they stick in the memory. To say nothing of It Was a Dark and Stormy Night, which people (laughs) lambast all they want, but it is actually the start of A Wrinkle in Time. Yep. Which I love, as one ought. So this is completely off the wall, but I remember one of the first Twitter interactions that I had with you that sticks out in my memory is a couple of years ago you had tweeted something about wanting readers to be able to put a voice to, uh, like an actual voice to an author's name. 
And so everybody was tweeting out these little videos of them reading things, either reading their own things or reading some other fiction uh, or poetry or what have you. And I remember just being so delighted by that. And I, I think I read a little bit of uh, The Thirteen Clocks to join in your semi-viral Twitter <laughs> semi-challenge. I, I vaguely remember that. I think I read a Philip Larkin poem, if I recall correctly. That seems correct. But uh, thinking about that, I just was struck by, you know, talking as well about novellas, that it's there's this explosion in the form, and I feel like there's also of late an explosion in the, like, podcasting, fan video, uh, vidcasting, whatever sort of space that's really valuable for letting letting readers experience authors who they like or authors who they might not yet know of in a way that's more visceral than just reading their words on a page. I would agree with that. And um, I think that's really interesting when you think about the shrinking distances that are now sort of expected and not found weird in any way between the reader and the author, like, just as a, an example, when I was growing up, I probably could not have picked any of my favorite authors out of a lineup if I saw mm -hmm. them. I didn't know what they looked like. I loved C.J. Cherry. Am I pronouncing her name right? Sounds right. I was, like, 32 before I found out that was a woman. Like, I had no idea. Mm -hmm. And now people, they see what their authors look like. They can meet them when they go on tours. They can listen to them on podcasts. Some of them read their own audiobooks. And uh, I just find that really, really interesting in terms of a shift between that distance. You know, I think it used to be more possible to write an entire book, maybe have an entire career, honestly, without thinking about your readers at all. <laughs> and mm -hmm. now you kind of think intimately about them while you write. You think maybe there are people out there specifically that I can think of by name that would like this short story I'm writing. Yeah. And that can be absolutely terrifying, but I also just kind of love that to be able to, as a fan, to be able to tweet at a writer and say, I loved this thing, it meant so much to me. And as a writer to be able to, uh, to have the potential of receiving that as a, as a podcaster now, I get that sometimes of people tweeting at me and saying, I really love the kindness that you show in your show. I really love, you know, this episode that you did was really thought-provoking. And I'm like, oh my god, that's super exciting to me. Yeah, well, and I understand what you mean about it being terrifying, too, because, oh god, strangers, I hope they like me. I hope the strangers like me. Yeah. Uh, when I was at uh, Worldcon this year, my first Worldcon in Dublin, uh, I was unaware at the time that my editor of my debut novel and our publicist had brought a rolling suitcase full of advanced review copies of the book Ooh. and were handing them out. And uh, I had no idea until most of the way through the first day when somebody found me, tapped me on the shoulder and said, can you sign this? And I was like, oh, who wrote this? Oh, it's my book. <laughs> How did you get this? Who are you? I will sign it for you. But <laughs> yeah, this is the most frightening thing that's happened to me in ages. Mm hmm. So, yeah, it was nice to see people excited about it, but it was also horrifying, and I wanted to go hide in the bar. Yes. And then I did go hide in the bar. <laughs> and then plan. people found me there and made me sign the book. Yeah. 
I know my personal background as the child of science fiction fans from way back when, uh, it's interesting to see the shift in how fandom is done now that uh, the internet is a thing, and how friendships are done now that the internet is a thing, that my dad has never used the internet and writes letters on a manual typewriter and goes to the post office and sends them to friends in far-off places like Reykjavik and North Dakota and Vladivostok. And then I just log on to Twitter and spout off some dumb shit and then make jokes with writers who I know just because at some point in the past I was like, you look like an interesting person. I want to know more about you. I feel like I've made a lot of Twitter friends that way. And also, I love that your dad writes letters. I find that so charming, and I wish more people would do that. Isn't it so nice to get a letter? It's or like so a wonderful postcard to get a or something? Letter. I mean, not that I don't like getting tweets from my friends, but... <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think that's the reason that we have uh, February's National Letter Writing Month, or Letter Writing Month, whatever. Is it? Oh my god, uh, I should write people some letters. Yeah. I'll write you a letter in February. I will write you a letter, providing California is still there and hasn't burned down or floated away or anything. You know, fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. But yeah, I've also, I think I've made friends on Twitter specifically because a bunch of us were in an anthology together. So Mm -hmm. I must have 30 or 40 people that I've been friends with for years just because we all shared a table of contents once. And I feel like that's quite common and I don't know why I find it funny, but... (laughs) I think it's common and I think it's a really great thing. I think I'm probably friends with you on Twitter and in person or in voice, whatever you call this thing that we're doing. Yeah. (laughs) Because of you sharing a table of contents with those people and even before knowing you were on that table of contents seeing, oh, here's this person who's interacting with people I already know and like and think are cool they must also be cool, I'm going to follow them. Yeah, and it's getting so hard to do that in real life. It's like, I would love to be friends with my friends' friends, but nobody ever leaves the house anymore. Mm-hmm. So we all have to do it on Twitter. That's yeah. the only place where you can hang out with your friends' friends. For sure. I'm assuming that the anthology that is the source of many an internet friend is No Shit There I Was? Indeed it is. Fantastic. Uh, You are the third No Shit There I Was table of contents person on this show now. Oh, that's awesome. So you're kind of recreating the anthology. I'm I'm slowly going through the table of contents there. I've already had uh, Tyler Hayes and R.K. Duncan. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. Uh, And I think, you know, now that I think about it, I think a lot of the internet friends I have now are indirectly because of no shit there i was because of getting connected with a writing community uh off of twitter through that table of contents same here i think because almost all the people i think in that table of contents already knew a bunch of people but for Mm -hmm. me that was my second story sale i think like ever because i only really got into publishing in like 2016 and again, before that, I would just write and write and write and write and write and, like, set it aside, because that's what I thought you did with writing. <laughs> mm-hmm. Which is but, totally valid. Which, which is legit. But uh, then someone was like, 
are you aware that they will give you cash money dollars for stories? <laughs> and I was like, no, go on. Um, so that was my second sale, and I was super excited about it. And then everybody was so nice and enthusiastic and welcoming. I was like, please be my friends. Mm -hmm. And it seems to have worked out. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you can you can turn those stories not only into cash money dollars, but then into cake. Yes, which is uh, the best thing about cash money dollars is that it can be used to exchange for cake. And it's then true. later you can sell reprints for more cake. Unbelievable. What a racket. Unbelievable. And when you don't sell a story, thank you, Kat. <laughs> when you don't sell a story, you can also get cake. Yes, you can have self-pity cake. You know, I, I think maybe this whole writing thing is sponsored by the big cake industry. I enjoy that your cat seems to be enjoying the podcast. Yes. <laughs> she is uh, enjoying it instead of just yelling, which is what the other cat does. Okay, this is good. This is the quiet cat. Yes. <laughs> quiet and does not stick me full of holes. Oh, well, that's the best kind of cat, then. Yeah. So one of the things which... I am sure you're aware of having listened to this show yourself before is that we like to bring out the time machine and travel back in time to when Baby Preemie was writing. And if there's any advice that you know now that you could have given yourself then. Oh, good question. So, like I said, being in the uh, publishing game and considering that to be very, very different from the writing game. I'm not sure because for almost so for 20 years or so I have been writing without anybody else ever reading my work, mm -hmm. just me, um, which I now to see to be a major drawback. And if I could go back to Baby Preemie when she started submitting, it would be to shake her by the shoulders and say, "If you are going to submit something, set it aside for a minute. Don't just finish that final edit and submit it. Things need mm -hmm. to." Percolate. You were submitting stuff that was clearly not ready to be seen by other humans <laughs> in, in the excitement of realizing that you could sell short stories for money. I submitted a lot of stuff that was clearly crap. <laughs> <laughs> Which I think is an important part of being a submitting writer. I, I agree. I think it's um, tremendously useful because how do you eventually develop the ability to distinguish crap from not crap if you don't write and submit some crap? Mm-hmm. I mean, the one other way to distinguish between crap and not crap is slushing. Yes. <laughs> you very quickly figure out, I used to say, you know, I should I should never have a magazine. One of the things that I thought before I eventually decided, hey, I should start a podcast. It's like, oh, wouldn't it be cool to have, like, an online magazine someday? And, you know, I'd always say to myself or to anybody who would listen, like, oh, but I could never do that because I'd just buy everything because I'd think it was all just so great. And then the couple of times that I've slushed brought me quickly to my senses. <laughs> yeah, I uh, have been slushing for the Escape Pod podcast for, I don't know, what are we at now? Probably less than a year or so, which has definitely been extremely eye-opening. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it's when you see some of the stuff that people thought was appropriate to send in, you start to lose faith in the uh, ability of mankind to progress at all, ever, past its current point. But you also start to realize, oh my god, editors are needed, and they have a very tough job. Mm -hmm. <laughs> there's a lot of very, very bad writing out there, and there's also a lot of very, very good writing that just isn't a good fit. Yeah. 
And that last part is so key and something that, you know, if, if I had my time machine is something I would just yell at myself incessantly is something can be good and not be a good fit. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, and that's something I wish I'd also been able to tell myself because I really, like I said, I think I rushed into it and I really started submitting stories to places that I wasn't very familiar with what they had already published. Mm-hmm. And that's so key. Otherwise, how do you know if it's a fit? Yeah. And some, I mean, sometimes there are just so many markets and it can be difficult to familiarize yourself sufficiently using heavy air quotes with the market to know for sure that something is is a good fit but even just like one or two stories you can kind of get an idea of the voice that a market likes and the sorts of things that the editors like yes i agree and yeah i think there i can only think of a handful or so of magazines that i would think had a had such a distinctive voice that if you picked a story out of it and if you read it completely on its own, you might know that it was from there. Uh, Shimmer mm-hmm. Stories actually is the one that comes to mind. That I was never what wrote. I was going to say. Yeah, I never wrote anything shimmery, and I knew it. Um, and I always loved the stories in there, but I just you know that wasn't what I was writing. But the editorial voice was so perfect and clear and distinct. You always knew what was a shimmer story and what wasn't. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I wrote and and almost shimmery story that was uh, a Flash piece, and they they were very hard to sell on Flash, which ended up being that story's downfall. But it was it currently revi- resides in the trunk because there's nobody else who has quite that same sensibility as Shimmer. Mm-hmm. And ho- hopefully someday it'll come out, you know. Or I'll just have a collection coming together and they say, oh, we need 600 more words, please. And you'll be like, have I got a story for you? Yes. <laughs> and they'll say, have you? And I'll say, actually, I do. <laughs> Please behold my trunk. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Just root around in there. You'll find something. <laughs> As somebody who also was guilty early in my career of essentially sending stories out, having shown them to no- approximately nobody, and with only the idea that editing is going through and cutting a bunch of words out sort of arbitrarily what because i i imagine this is a question a lot of readers a lot of listeners rather might have is like so how how do you find somebody to read this thing and tell you if it is good i have not yet figured that out so (laughs) people still don't read my stuff before I send it out. I don't have uh, beta readers or alpha readers or whatever. Mm-hmm. And again, I think that's from the 20 years of writing alone. And I forget which writer it was that said that writing is not a team sport. You can have mm-hmm. cheerleaders, but you shouldn't have somebody running out onto the field to help you. And right. I don't think that's true for everyone, but I strongly feel that I wouldn't be able to find anybody who could read a work with the same kind of I don't want to say harshness, <laughs> mm-hmm. but with the same kind of word-murdering viciousness <laughs> that future preemie reads past preemies works with. <laughs> uh, I'm fair. Yeah, I'm my own editor, and then it goes to submission or it goes to my agent, and these days that's about it. <laughs> that's absolutely fair. And it, it is, you know, I, I will say that 20 years of practice is a fair bit. 
and <laughs> a good way to be able to hone that voice. I will say that having a community of writers and for myself, I find the cheerleading aspect very helpful in having beta readers in having people just to bounce ideas off of sometimes and everybody's process obviously is different, but hello, cat. <laughs> yes, just mash your face against everything, please. Um... <laughs> Yeah, I um, I like the validation, I guess, on, on finished works, uh, because again, when you write alone for years and you write for yourself, um, you have to draw two dots on your hand and make it talk if you want to give yourself a compliment, mm -hmm. uh, which is, you know, very tedious, and then you have to wash the dots off later. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I think the other problem, too, that I'm now seeing is that I have friends who um, send me their stuff, and they're like, I would love if you could comment or feedback on this and I'm like you know what I don't think I really have ever developed that skill I will read it and I'll be like some of this works for me and some of this doesn't work for me and I'm not sure what or why but have fun fixing it I love you mm -hmm. it is certainly a muscle that needs development needs exercise and needs training yes I think it needs deliberate yeah exercise and training otherwise you're just running around throwing words at people yeah Listeners who may also be supporters of Mary Robinette Kowal may have had the opportunity to beta read some of her stories in the past. Um, listeners who are fans of Mary Robinette Kowal and would like to support her in another way, you can go and support her on Patreon and get the opportunity occasionally to beta read her stories. But she has, for people who are wondering how to flex those muscles and figure out how to give meaningful feedback, she has a set of guidelines that she asks her beta readers to use for her of basically four criteria that are, wow, I love this. I don't believe this. Uh, I'm confused. And a fourth thing, which will probably come back to me later. That is one method, and there are many different critiquing methods. And I'd say if you are somebody who wants other people to read your work, Twitter is actually a really great place. Some of the friends I have now are friends who I made on Twitter, either by answering the call when they said, hey, I need somebody to look over this story, or by going on Twitter and saying, hey, I need somebody to look over this story, and they just, you know, randomly stumble across it and say, oh, I'll help. Yeah, I love to see that, because Twitter's such a, well, if, if you know the right people, <laughs> Twitter's yeah. such a supportive writing community, and I absolutely love when I do see someone who goes oh I'm, I'm kind of unsure about this story can someone give it a fresh set of eyes and like 30 people immediately reply I'm like you guys are so good and so pure mm -hmm. <laughs> like we're all in this together thank you for helping out I am useless I will not help but good luck <laughs> <laughs> yeah Twitter can be terrible but also Twitter can be really wonderful I and agree. you know it, it is as with so many other things, it's a matter of filtering and figuring out what works for you. Yes. And as with everything in life, it's about careful curation. Yes. And uh, the, what do you call it? Um, signal to noise ratio. Yeah. 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 Listeners, if you need some people to follow, any guest of this show, a worthy follow on Twitter. Please follow me. Yes. I should post a lot, though. Watch out. <laughs> 
I mean, anybody who's listening to this show who follows me already gets a lot of shit posting. So, <laughs> okay, good. I'm in good company then. Yes, I think shit posting is a method of self care for writers and very important. Please do not take our shit posting away from us. Oh my god, I don't think I would be able to write if I couldn't also shit post. I think I would just stop functioning. There has yeah. to be an outlet for it because my editor doesn't want it. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, especially if you are a person who has unshakable compulsion to make really terrible jokes. Twitter is a much better place to put those, and they will be much better received if by better received your definition includes people yelling at you in all caps than your manuscript. Yes, that's how you know that it's a good joke, is several people come in and shout at you or uh, post gifts saying how disappointed they are, and then you're like, yes, now I can go on with my day. Absolutely. Very vital that that happens. If you are unsure of good follows who make this sorts of these sorts of jokes click into one of our timelines cl- select tweets and replies and scroll down until you see us yelling somebody's name in all caps yes. that's probably a good person <laughs> to follow john wiswell <laughs> i'm glad we were both thinking of the same person we're thinking of the same person I don't yell at him much, but I'm yelling at him in my head fairly often. (laughs) Yes. Important. Well, Primi, it was so awesome to have you on the show. Uh, I really appreciate it. I'm really glad to have your kind Canadian sensibilities. Uh, Cat, please don't. (laughs) So many cat-based outtakes today. I um I don't have a cat, and I kind of had this image in my head of them landing gracefully. That sounds like you just threw a large decorative gourd onto the floor. <laughs> she is a large decorative gourd. That is uh, one of the things that we call her regularly. I thought it would be like, light as a feather, and it's like, no, it's like a pony. <laughs> yep, that's her. Get out of the Aren't room, you? cat. <laughs> Aren't you just a large decorative gourd, Fei-Fei? Primi Mohammed, thank you so much for being on the show. Where can our dear listeners find you elsewhere? Uh, thank you so much for having me on the show. It's been a delight. They can find me on Twitter all the time, especially when I'm supposed to be sleeping. Mood. At, at Primisaurus. And I'm sure this will be up on the podcast if you can't spell my name. And it's the same handle on Instagram. And uh, my website is www.primimohammed.com. Com because for some reason nobody wanted that address <laughs> and I don't post material on it very often but it's uh, it's there anyway. Excellent uh, and all of these links will be in the show notes listeners so don't worry if you cannot spell. I'm sure you've already had to use the show notes to figure out what the spelling is for Hillary Bisniak's so Primi once again thank you so much. Thank you. Listeners, I hope you join us next month on December 20th, when our guest will be Sharon Shu. Tales from the Trunk is mixed and produced in beautiful Oakland, California. You can support the show on Patreon at patreon.com trunkcast. All patrons of the show now get a logo button, along with show outtakes and other content that can't be found anywhere else. You can find the show on Twitter at trunkcast, and I tweet at hbbisniex. If you like the show... Consider taking a moment to rate and review us on your preferred podcast platform. And remember, don't self-reject.